Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. Welcome to episode two of The Long Way. Our episode today is titled, Oh Happy Day. Now, The Long Way is a podcast of CARDIS. And what is CARDIS? Well, we're a think tank, which in practical terms means we conduct independent public policy research in a host of areas, for example, education, family, religious freedom. But we also think about the big picture of society, looking for ways that we can live together well, honor our differences, and protect the vulnerable. In the first season of The Long Way, we're focused on the theme of rebuilding from a pandemic that's turned much of our society upside down. So what about our understanding of happiness and its relationship to the common good? One of the best people to turn to for a discussion on that is Arthur Brooks, professor of the practice of leadership at Harvard Kennedy School, as well as an author, podcaster, and columnist for The Atlantic. And as it turns out, he specializes in happiness. Arthur, you've described yourself on your own podcast, The Art of Happiness, as a professor who teaches happiness. Uh, You study behavior in your work at Harvard. So as you observe the way that Americans and Canadians have responded to the, the pandemic and lockdowns and that sort of thing, what do you see in terms of our ability to manage or cultivate happiness in those kinds of circumstances? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast and thanks for that question. I'm finding that Americans and Canadians and and people all around the world are doing pretty well, actually. And part of the reason is because we're so resilient. It's amazing how people make their own conditions for happiness, but we're not perfect. And so one of the things that I've been thinking an awful lot about are the, I guess, the mistakes that I find most common today. Uh, the ways of thinking that that people engage in that are kind of unproductive. And I found, I, I guess if I were to, to, to isolate them, um, I would say that there are four basic areas of, of avoidable errors. The first is how we deal with the disappointments of the things we're missing. I'd say the second is how we're dealing with the fear that comes from uncertainty. The third is how we're coping with loneliness. And the fourth is the way that we're putting stress on our relationships. And so those are the big areas where I think we can make improvement. Why don't you unpack those four areas for us a little bit? Sure. Um, to, to start with, let's let's talk about disappointment. I mean, people are kind of reluctant to admit it, but a lot of people are, are feeling really disappointed about what they're missing. My oldest son is graduating from college right now, for example, and you know he's a good, modest person, and he feels real empathy for the people who are losing their jobs and, and God forbid, people who are sick. But, but he has to admit that he's disappointed. He doesn't, he doesn't get to graduate the way that past classes and future classes are able to. And almost everybody listening to us is missing something, whether that's, you know, the wedding of a child, family get together, something. And that disappointment can pose a real problem because people are spending a lot of time ruminating on the things that they're missing. I find this all the time. People talk to me constantly. Well, if it weren't for the coronavirus pandemic, here's what I'd be doing. That's entirely unproductive because of a cognitive error in which we make the mistake of confusing our disappointment with regret. 
Now, both of them are, are emotions, both regret and disappointment are emotions in which we, we feel badly about something that happened in the past, but there's a big difference, which is agency. In other words, when I feel regret for something, I wish I had done something differently. When I feel disappointment, I wish something had happened differently. Uh, we have a tendency to confuse the two emotions in our minds because they're so similar. And in, and in fact, if you look in the dictionary, if you say, what's regret, they'll, they'll give you disappointment as a synonym. But they're not synonyms. Why? Because the way that we deal with regret is not how we should deal with disappointment. Regret is dealt with by ruminating on something that we did poorly and thinking about how we would do it differently so that we can learn and make progress in the future. When we ruminate on areas of disappointment, all we do is drive ourselves into the ground. We, we cultivate the disappointment. We double down on the unhappiness. And so that's a mistake to ever ruminate on your areas of disappointment. It's very important to move on. And so I talk to people about the ways that they can actually do that. When you're in a particular situation, so much of this is situational. You know, for me, I get to work from home. Uh, I don't have to take public transport anymore. Uh, I'm safe at home. I'm with my family. I eat lunch with my family every day. That's mm. not to say that I never want to go back to the office. But in, in some ways, my situation personally has been, has. I mean, there's some benefits to this entire pandemic. I still wish the pandemic didn't exist. I wish there was no lockdown, etc. cetera. Uh, but I can still see some some positives in that. Whereas for others, their situation will be very different if they're out of work, uh, if they're in a particular situation with family strife at home. That makes being at home worse than it than it is uh, otherwise. So there's a situational aspect to all of this. I think we need to take into account. For sure. And, you know, I was talking to somebody yesterday who confessed that she was feeling guilty because she's loving the lockdown. I mean, she's spending time with her husband and children. Uh, she's doing work that she loves. She, as you suggested, she doesn't have to commute. It's great. And she feels guilty because she knows that other people are suffering so much. But of course, that doesn't make sense either. Just because the benefits outweigh the costs for you personally doesn't mean that you have to find some way to obliterate the enjoyment you're getting from it. You can still be empathetic. You can still reach out to others. You can still try to find ways to mitigate the sufferings that other people are feeling while recognizing that this all in is not a bad phenomenon for your lifestyle. Now, that said... You might not want it to go on forever, Daniel, uh, as much as I'm sure you love having breakfast, lunch, and dinner and spending every waking hour of the day with your family. There will come a time, almost certainly, where your brain will say, I, I need more contact with other people. I need a broader array of relationships. And this is kind of leading to the second problem that people are having. Even people like you and, and, and like me who see a lot of good, having a lot of fun with our families and even a lot of personal growth, they're feeling uncomfortable because they're not getting enough contact with other humans. Now, what that, what's going on there is that they're, they're missing a, a neurotransmitter in the human brain called oxytocin. Oxytocin is produced with eye contact and touch with others. And we generally need more of it than we can, we can get only from the people in our, in our immediate environment. And so the big mistake that people are making is that they're looking to, you know, the means they think are at their disposal to get more contact. And that's generally social media. 
social media is an, is is, a, is sort of the is sort of junk food. It's the burgers and fries of social relationships, and so the result of it is that what people are doing is they're binging on social media and actually feeling worse and lonelier than they had otherwise. So I give people a lot of counsel these days on how to get off social media, but to use new technologies like Zoom and Skype and FaceTime, where you can see people in their eyes and to use it therapeutically one to two hours a day on top of the enhanced relationships you're getting with the people that you live with. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Zoom, because very practically speaking, before all of this happened, uh, a teleconference was sort of a, a, a regular tool that I would use uh, and that my colleagues would use. And in, in those situations, we would hear each other's voice, but you wouldn't necessarily see the person. Now, of course, we're all in our homes, cloistered, and we're using Zoom, and we can actually see each other. In fact... You know, in, at Cardis, we have an, an office in Hamilton, Ontario. That's where the headquarters are. And I'm in Ottawa. Um, I see my Hamilton colleagues now more often via Zoom than I would otherwise pre-pandemic. It's kind of ironic. Yeah, yeah. no, no, that's right. It's, it's, it's interesting. Now, a lot of people who disliked the video conferences in the past are finding that they like Zoom. And, and part of the reason is because that's what's available. <laughs> that's what's... That's what's at our fingertips at this point. And I actually think that people are finding that it's it's more than an okay substitute for commuting for an hour. I think it, that people are finding that efficiency gains are, are terrific. And, and we're not going to go back to as much in-face meetings as we did in the past and not mu as much travel as we did in the past. This is really good, and, and this is quite typical. In the United States and Canada, these are societies that are based on, on entrepreneurship, uh, I mean, based in no small part on progress that comes from innovation and people thinking about old problems in new ways. Uh, this is what really characterizes North American society to a very large extent. And, and what that means is as much as you and I, if we could snap our fingers and uh, get rid of COVID-19 today, we would. But since we can't, we're going to look for new ways to enhance efficiency, to improve the way that we do business. And I think that there's, that's one way in which we're going to come out of this better off than we went in. Do you think that on the other side of this crisis, we will value things differently? You know, time with family versus working more, uh, the importance of faith, you know, being able to be with others in a, in a worship space, for example, things that maybe we had taken for granted before. <laughs> I'd love to say yes, absolutely, Daniel. But I know human nature, and I also understand the the psychological concept of homeostasis. Homeostasis is the, the phenomenon in which we, we feel something new very acutely, but it becomes old very quickly. And, and this is a, a way that we've stayed alive as a human species. If, you, if your primary emotions are stimulated, whether they're good or bad, that has to pass quickly such that you can move on to the next set of emotions. And so people will, will, will change their behavior and really f feel very refreshed for a while when we come out of this, but I strongly suspect that we will adapt to our circumstances for, for good and for ill. What I recommend is that for all of us to do our best to put a bulwark in place uh, against the behaviors that we're finding were unproductive. I ask people all the time, what are you finding out about your unhealthy attachments during the coronavirus lockdown? And people will start by saying, I don't know. And then they think and they think, wow, there's a bunch of stuff that I don't get right now that I regretted and I realized I didn't, I didn't need it. People are finding they don't need to spend nearly as much money as they used to eating out. 
they thought they enjoyed it more than they did. And there's a bunch of these attachments that I'm hoping that while I don't think society writ large is going to change, I think that individuals, if they're very conscious, if they're very mindful, if they're, if they're fully awake during this time, that they can indeed improve their lives. Do you think that the experience for for most of us, let's say for, for most people in North America, has has highlighted or uncovered elements of our lives that are extraneous, for lack of a better term, things that, that we could have done without long before we realized we could do without them? For sure. And, and that's always the case. Um, this is the the circumstances like this really are the mother of invention. Uh, we find deficiencies almost inevitably, not because some great entrepreneur comes along, but because we have some sort of a crisis. It, the classic case is, for example, the in, in North America, writ large, the worst performing public schools for many years were in New Orleans. Well, that's changed. Why is that changed? Because in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, which leveled that city, I mean, it really shut that city down for a long time, the public schools had to rebuild. And they rebuilt around principles of, of education choice, where parents, especially low-income parents, were better able to decide how their children were going to be educated and where. It's, it's radically changed the landscape of, of education, freedom, of you know the liberty of parents and families in that city. And, and the result is that education has got gotten a lot better. Again, this is the hallmark of a society that knows how to make progress. Uh, entrepreneurship is really a process in which ordinary non-entrepreneurial people would see tragedy or challenge and the entrepreneurs, they see opportunity. Entrepreneurial societies grow from these types of challenges. I, I fully expect the economy to come back, not as quickly as a lot of people would like to see. I, th I know that the public health challenge will be solved. And I think all, all, all in all, net, net, if you and I talk in five years, we're going to remark on how we have actually come out ahead in this particular crisis. Now, not everybody, and, and I have to be, we have to really caveat this because some people who lose their jobs or who get sick, these people will have really long-term problems um, from this. I hope not the people who get sick, but for the the bigger part of society, I think that that this this challenge really can be an opportunity. You know, as you observe various social trends. Where would you suspect would be those points of improvement or those points of hope that we could maybe expect to see in the next six months or six years even? Well, I think that one of the things, one of the th things that I really find as a source of, of, of consolation is that people uh, were really very addicted to politics and news about politics going into this, the, the polarization, particularly in the United States, but also in Canada. It was alarming. There was a, a high degree of polarization around the outrage that was being fomented and you know, ginned up to a large extent by the media because it's a profit-making industry. One of the things that we notice is that interest in political news, which is to say entertainment at this point, is much lower than it's been in the past. I mean, one thing I'm really looking forward to is no political conventions in an, in, in an election year in the United States. What a miracle. Wow, that's like my, you know, a Christmas dream for me is, uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a public policy guy. So you'd think that that would be really, really fun. But, you know, the, the bitterness that's come has been tearing our societies apart politically. 
um, is, in, is in no small part because media have profited from that. And there is less interest. There's less demand for that. That's one way in which I think our society will improve. And it's part of a broader set of phenomena in which we're going to find that we have more in common than we thought with our neighbors, that we hate our neighbors less than we thought, that the differences aren't as great as we thought. I, I think that we're going to come out of this a little better aligned and uh, with a little bit more solidarity than we went in. I like that. And I, you know what? If we come out of this with less of a culture of contempt, which I know you, you've written about in Love Your Enemies, your book, if we come out of this with less of a culture of contempt, I, I will be, uh, I'll be very pleased with an outcome like that. That would be wonderful. Me too. I would love that. And, and again, the, the question is not whether or not this should serendipitously occur, but whether those of us who are blessed to be in leadership positions, whether or not we're pushing it along. I mean, so everybody who's listening to us, who's sitting in quarantine right now, self-sheltering uh, in place, I guess, what the term of art, what can you do to push that phenomenon forward? What can you do to turn people toward greater solidarity and away from polarization and to use the COVID-19 crisis as an opportunity to make it better? Yeah, well, I can tell you this, Arthur, that would make me happier. Thank you very <laughs> much for, uh, for your time and, and for, for coming onto the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. And thanks to all of our listeners. As we end every episode, let's bring in the producer of The Long Way, Rachel DeBrun. Rachel, welcome. Hi, Daniel. Talking with Arthur Brooks is such a pleasure. There are so many things that we talked about, stuff that we left unsaid or unexplored. There's, there's just never any enough time uh, to deal with everything. But I have to say that one of the most interesting aspects for me of the entire conversation kind of came at the end, where we talked about political polarization. Now, I know Arthur talks about it from an American perspective and in that context, but I think it applies in Canada. He's seeing less polarization as a result of, um, maybe as one of the effects of the experience of the last two and a half, three months. Um, I'm hoping that that's something that will last. Oh, let's hope. I mean, I really feel for our, our Southern neighbors, and it's so interesting hearing Arthur's perspective, but it's refreshing. I think we're seeing the same thing up here too, and I've been loving it. One of the other aspects of the conversation is that we're realizing perhaps that we can do with less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and maybe, maybe that'll lead to some less, less materialism, which would be a great thing in North American culture, I would, I would add. But by the same token, Arthur is also, I mean, he's a realist. And so he says, you know, we're going to have to fight human nature to, um, mm. I guess, make some of the positive changes permanent. It's a bit of splash of cold water, isn't it? It's it's we're forced to look at ourselves quite a bit. Actually, that that reminds me of um, something that this whole conversation made me think of. Speaking of of looking at ourselves, I mean, our technology tells us so much about ourselves. That's how we study history. We look at the tools and the technologies that civilizations were using, and here we are using video conferencing to connect with anyone outside of our household, and. 
I, I mean, I hate this. Every video conferencing tool that I've used, doesn't matter the brand, I cannot turn off the function that forces me to stare at myself as I talk to other people. I can try to make my face small, but what does that say about ourselves that the technology we design for ourselves is forcing us to think about ourselves even as we're talking to other people? I mean, in person, I don't have to look at myself. I'm, I'm focusing on the other person. And I think psychologically that is impacting how I relate to other people, the technologies that I use. And, and maybe that circles back to what you're talking about with materialism. Maybe the things that we use and the lifestyles that we had previously taken for granted were affecting how we relate to each other. Interesting. Rachel, thank you, as always. Uh, always good to chat. Always good. Well, don't miss our next episode focusing on trust. Is uh, social trust, trust in government, changing because of the pandemic? And what does that mean for the future? I'll speak with David Ryan, Vice President of Edelman, the folks behind the Trust Barometer, and Michael Van Pelt, President and CEO of Cardus. For the entire Cardus team, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Thanks for listening.